May I say what a great pleasure it is, a real delight to be here at Lund in this festival atmosphere. It's one of my favourite places that I've been to in the course of researching the book. It's lovely to be invited back to share the anniversary with you. I must begin with a sort of apology. I have a horrendous cold. I am hoping my voice will last out. Um, any prayers, just throw them my way. Um, I call my little section of today, don't you mean Oliver? Because that is exactly what people used to say to me when I, I first said I was writing about Thomas Cromwell. And they don't say it any longer. And it it seems odd that it took a novelist to bring such a major figure to public attention. But there has always been a mismatch between what Thomas Cromwell has meant to historians and what he's meant to the general public. And that's the case whether they're novel readers or theatre goers or film goers. For some academics in the past, uh, Cromwell has been nothing but a cynical hatchet man, clever but destructive. There is a far more interesting, vital, creative figure that the great Tudor historian Geoffrey Elton uncovered, or some people say created. Now, the barrier between Cromwell and the general public, um, partly created by the fact that it's proved very difficult to write his biography. And in my view, although there are many biographies that have something to contribute, it wasn't until Dermot did his work that one got a sense of the whole man, of a real person. There's several problems for the biographer, which the novelist also shares. His early life is mostly off the record. And it exists as a set of interesting traditions and almost folk tales, rather than a set of verifiable facts. And in the second phase of his life, when he's working for Cardinal Wolsey, he begins to come on the record. And then, in the third phase, as secretary to the king, and later, well, in effect, Henry VIII's first minister, for almost a decade, he doesn't just come onto the record, he is the record. His work is everywhere. His eye, his hand are everywhere. Paradoxically, that makes it difficult because it's too big to pin down. He ranges across every department of government. Uh, he Accordingly, biographers have tended to think of him in compartments. So there's Cromwell and the church, Cromwell and finance, 
Cromwell and Parliament. And you readily see what happens. You can't section a human being like that. So a sense of a man being in there vanishes. Now, to create a human being, you have to be on top of a huge amount of detail. Or I should say to recreate a human being. You need a grasp of the detail, but you have to be able to see the wood for the, for the trees. And this has eluded a lot of biographers, but not this one. In, in some respects, my task as a novelist has been easier because where the facts run out, I could build something in the gap. <laughs> and I could create for him an inner life, a memory, a conscience, a set of hopes and fears. He wasn't self-revelatory. He didn't leave his writings that illuminate the state of his soul. In his letters, he stuck to business, just occasionally. Passion breaks through, and those moments are really worth waiting for. And then you think of Holbein's portrait. I don't know if you can call it to mind. That massive hulking presence in the, the dark wool and furs. It's closed. It seems to repel the light. It's as if he were bodily present, but mentally somewhere else. So where was he? And where was he when he was being painted? Where did his thoughts wander? And it was the deficiencies of that portrait. So dead, if you compare it, say, to Holbein's portrait of Thomas More, so swift, so fierce, so intellectual, so alive, that he almost comes out of the canvas. And there Cromwell sits and defies you. Make something of me. But it was the deficiency of the portrait that pushed me on. I thought, I'll try and find him. And that, and also the simple and sinister figure that he has become in popular culture. You'll probably be able to think back a generation or two to the, the very influential play and film, A Man for All Seasons, which created an indelible portrait of Thomas More as a 1960s liberal. <laughs> <laughs> and it has proved impossible to shake. Uh, so has the, um, the, the anti-verse, the black portrait of Thomas Cromwell. Um, in fact, as the part is written, it's not without its subtleties but I've never seen an actor interpret it with the least subtlety at all. They've decided Cromwell's a villain and that's that. So my three books, written over 12, 13 years now, take him from his days of obscurity to his end on Tower Hill, 1540. For me though, he's still a work in progress.
And at the moment, because I only finished my book about a month ago, swirling around in my head are all the books I could have written, all the alternative versions, the choices I made in every line. But there comes a time to commit, and it is now. And when the book's out, I hope you will think I have done justice to this remarkable life. And in any event, nobody will mix him up with Oliver again. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to The Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.